Well, good morning, church. My name is Cody Labarth. I'm one of the deacons here at Missio Church. Um, and again, it's a joy to be able to gather together for worship this morning. Uh, my family usually is worshiping um, in Casanova with uh, our Missio congregation there, but being able to drive in this morning and have our daughter request to play Row, Row, Row Your Boat like a thousand times just made everything worth it this morning, be able to hear that song so many times. Um, no, but seriously, it is a joy uh, to be able to just be with you all um, and to look at God's word together. So before we do that, though, we do have a few announcements that we just want to continue to make sure everyone is aware of. Um, so we'll just run through those and then we'll be looking at Psalm 14 this morning. Um, first one is that uh, we have the Words to Live By reading plan available um, back there at the Connection Center. So here at Missio, we, we certainly have a high value on um, all of us being in the scriptures daily, believing that the scriptures point to the person of Jesus and the life that we find in him. So um, we have a reading plan that's available. Uh, there, are, there are two versions of that reading plan, a regular plan, which takes us through about two chapters a day, um, as well as a modified plan, which is a little bit less, maybe one one chapter a day, uh, just to be a guide to help us have uh, the intimacy with the Lord that we all, all desire. Um, also, we have focus communities that are meeting. So we had our first meeting of focus communities last Wednesday. So the second meeting is coming up this Wednesday. Um, so what those are is that each year during the month of January, our missional communities uh, stop meeting uh, for that month and gather together to look at a few different topics. So um, in the past, we've looked at things like church history and financial stewardship. Uh, this year, we have two um, focus communities that are meeting one focusing on parenting um, called Foundations of a Godly Home, and then another one that explores uh, several different worldviews and how we as Christians can understand them and, and respond to them. So um, again, our second meeting is going to be this Wednesday at 6.30, meets in the parish house, which is kind of right behind me um, on Wednesdays. And so you can uh, RSVP for that at missiochurch.org backslash events. Let us know you're coming. We'd love to see everybody there. And then finally, we have a quarterly women's breakfast. Um, so on Saturday, January 18th at 8.30 in the morning from 8.30 to 10, um, the women will be gathering for a time of fellowship, study, and teaching from God's word. So uh, this meeting is going to be dish to pass style. So you can, uh, again, go to missiochurch.org backslash events. You can sign up for a food item, uh, register to go, and uh, be there for that encouraging time. So again, we are back looking at the Psalms as we start this new year. Um, and again, we are in Psalm 14 this morning. So if you were to look at Psalm 14, you can uh, feel free to flip there in your Bible in the pew. Um, we also will have that text on the screen so you don't have to. Uh, but on page 453, you would find Psalm 14. And one of the first things that we would notice about this Psalm is that it is written to the choir master. It's a Psalm of David written to the choir master. And so as we read Psalm 14, we're going to recognize that this psalm is a lament. Um, and if you, if you really know your psalms well, I'd be surprised if anyone knows this. There's, a, there's another psalm, Psalm 53, which if you read them, they're almost identical. Um, and so we notice that uh, all of the similarity between these psalms would make us say uh, that that's likely Psalm 53 is an alternate version of this psalm. And that both of these songs are included in the Psalter. They're meant to be sung by the community, the people of God, um, and really to be sung as they endure mistreatment and suffering. And so uh, there will be much for us to learn from Psalm 14 
this morning. So we'll, we'll pray together as we read God's word and then read the psalm together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that each of us would see and know that your word is truth. Lord, that the prayer that your son Jesus prayed, that we, your people, would be sanctified in the truth of your word, um, would be true today. We ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Psalm 14 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So one of the first things that we notice as we read this psalm is that David opens this psalm observing humanity and saying, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And this word fool, it's a word that we we hear used very often, we probably use that word ourselves and what I would say is that most of the time, whenever we hear that word uh, used in our culture today, it's, it's really not used in the sense that it is used in the scriptures. Now, we use the word fool to describe someone who uh, does something that might be considered unwise, something that's imprudent, uh, someone who makes a bad choice, who, who says the wrong thing at the wrong time. And um, I would say that many in our day might partially understand what, what foolishness is, uh, but it would seem to me that our, our cultural understanding, the common understanding of foolishness is incomplete. Because what David says here is that he begins this psalm looking at all of humanity and saying the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. Now in the Old Testament scriptures, the word fool is used to describe someone who rejects wisdom. And one commentator says this, he points out there are three Hebrew words for fool. All speak of moral orientation rather than intellectual ability. The word describes someone who stubbornly rejects wisdom. And what we see here in this psalm is that the primary indicator of one who is foolish is, is that they reject true wisdom. They reject the fact that there is a God, a creator God, who not only created this universe, but also designed his people for a purpose. That purpose being to glorify him, to bear his image on all of this earth and all that they do. And David is saying that the fool rejects this fundamental, foundational reality. There is a God. We should, we should note as we kind of consider this that the fool that David is describing here is not only philosophically an atheist. It, 
It's not someone who, who just rejects the idea of a God on an intellectual level, but David is describing a person in this psalm who, who though they might even believe in God intellectually, they refuse to acknowledge God in the way that they live. So we see that, that a foolish person is not only a philosophical atheist, but, but really a practical atheist, refusing to recognize God in the way they live. And what David is describing is an attitude of, of the heart. And, and when we read about the heart in the scriptures, we, we see that there really can be only two primary orientations. Uh, you're either going to recognize God and live humbly before him, submitted to him, or you're going to reject him and reject his authority over your life. What we see in the psalm is that the fool rejects God in his heart, and it leads to all kinds of evil. David says that these foolish ones that deny God, they, they are corrupt. This, this word, this Hebrew word that we translate as corrupt, it, it means that the original state has been marred or ruined. And so we see that Though humanity, as we read in the scriptures, was created for holiness, for intimacy with their God. Together, in this psalm, humanity has has become morally ruined. And so we see this connection as well. Those who deny God, they become corrupt. They've ruined the original state. And thus they've become morally ruined as well. And because of this moral ruin, the psalm goes on and says, the fool does abominable deeds. It's a strong word that that means that the fool does all kinds of evil deeds that are detestable to a holy God, the Lord who created all things. And we read about some of those abominable deeds even in this psalm. David goes on and says, there are none None of these godless people who do good. Even though the godless are often justified in their own eyes, even though the way of life of the godless might even be called good according to some worldly standard, and even though those who reject God, they may not, in fact, do all of the evil that they are capable of. The Lord might actually reserve some part of their their life that still reflects his his original design to some degree this psalm though is telling us that there are none there's no none of the godless who who truly do good none of them bring glory to god none of them are capable of truly doing good because they've rejected the one who is the source the standard for all goodness the lord himself and if the point isn't clear yet, David continues on. He takes this, this even further. He says that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And the picture that we have here is that the Lord is, is high above all of his creation. He looks down on the children of man, the children of Adam, to see if there are any who have understanding. And so we we see if foolishness is to reject God, understanding then 
wisdom, understanding is to seek after him. And what does it mean to, to seek after God? To seek is to look for, it's to inquire, it's to search out God and his ways. Another time this phrase is used in the Old Testament is uh, when a prophet says to one of the kings of Judah, he says this, some good is found in you. For you destroyed the Asheroth, those were the idols, the idols that were in the land were destroyed out of the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. And so this, this reference helps us understand a bit more what, what's meant in Psalm 14, to seek after God. The psalm is telling us the Lord is looking for those who, who seek him from the heart. The scriptures tell us that the heart is the seat of the the mind and the emotions from which all actions flow. And so a person who seeks the Lord with their heart is a person who searches for meaning, for truth, and finds it in recognizing God as creator. And thus lives in submission, humble submission to his designs, his commands, his word. And so the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And David says, the Lord finds none. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so we see there there are none who, who are not guilty. All have rejected him. This language, it's obvious, is is broad, it's encompassing, that all of the children of Adam have turned aside, that humanity in general has rejected its creator. And David, uh, as he considers these children of Adam who have rejected God, he, he primarily has in mind those Gentile nations that surrounded Israel that that did not worship Yahweh. And thus they rejected him, even though the evidence for his existence, his rule, his power should have been clear. These Gentile nations rejected God. And then in the the very next verse, David is going to say this. He's going to mention another group of people. So first we have this picture of broad humanity, we know from context that David is, is primarily thinking of, of the Gentile nations that surround him. And, and then he says this, he refers to a group of people as his people, the people over whom God put him to reign as king. And then in the next verse after that, he's going to, to mention the generation of the righteous. And so as we read this psalm, we we encounter a bit of an interpretive challenge. If, if no one of all of the children of man seek after God, then who then could be part of this righteous generation? And so as we read this psalm today, as we have seen time and time again in, in other psalms, we see that this psalm ultimately points us to Jesus. We understand that that these words that are written in Psalm 14, they do apply to all of mankind. And therefore, these words in the first three, four verses of, of Psalm 14, they apply to each one of us 
as well. Paul, in, in his third chap, uh, letter, sorry, his third chapter to, of his letter to the Romans, he, he quotes these, these verses from Psalm 14 to explain that, that all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin. He says that all have turned aside. And after he quotes these verses, he goes on to quote other Psalms and, and other prophets from the Old Testament to extensively argue that and show us that all men have rejected God, all people. He describes mankind this way. In Romans 3, he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. He then summarizes all of this by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that because of this, because of their evil, the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so as we read these verses in Psalm 14, we understand they describe, they truly describe all people who, who by their very nature, inherited from, from Adam, as children of Adam, all people have turned away from their creator. And so these verses in, in Psalm 14, they help us understand our own sinfulness. That left to our own, we are the fool, the fool that is described in verses 1 to 4. And so again, we see how these psalms, they point us to King Jesus. How is it that if all people have rejected God, if all men are, are as evil as is described in the scriptures, that some people might be called his people? that some might be called a righteous generation. And we know from the scriptures that it is, it is only by the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Paul continues on in Romans 3 to describe the, the way of redemption that is found in Jesus alone. He says, now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so because of this gospel, because of this glorious truth, we today, we God's people today, we can sing this, this psalm, this lament as our own. It becomes personal to us. We can read this psalm knowing that for those of us who are in Christ, it in fact tells our story. That we have gone from being the fool in verse 1 who rejected God to being called the generation of the righteous, to being called his people. One commentator recognized this, and this is the way he said it. In the psalm, there is a gap 
between the fool and the righteous. From a New Testament perspective, the entire psalm may be read as a spiritual pilgrimage. The reader begins standing where the fool stands, but as he continues to read, he perceives and laments the nature of folly and its consequent evil. And with the psalmist, he must pray for deliverance from that folly. And so these verses should cause us, the people of God, to recognize that we at one time were the fool that rejected God, but because of God's grace in Christ Jesus, we are now this righteous generation. And because of this reality, the remaining verses of this psalm, they really become incredibly hopeful to us, despite the the really dire situation that is described in the first few verses. In verse 4, David says this. He says of the godless, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? So again, David laments how, how now God's people, Israel, over whom he reigned, they suffered at the hands of the godless. He describes the godless as lacking knowledge. He says, they do not call upon the Lord. And because they reject God, they now eat up God's people as they eat bread. This language is used to describe really just a variety of ways in which God's people were suffering at the hands of the godless. God's people were falsely accused. They were schemed against Violence was done against them. Their their wealth was taken from them unjustly. They were eaten like bread. And as we consider the way that God's people were, were treated then, we know that likewise, God's people continue to suffer throughout the world today. History has shown us that following Christ comes with a cost. And in fact, this congregation is connected to Christians throughout the world whose freedom and even their lives are at risk because of their faith in Jesus. In fact, we we are really not very far removed from some Christians who have even given their lives because of following Christ. And really, many of us in this room, we know This suffering, this suffering for being God's people, we know it personally. If we were to go around, I'm sure people could tell of relationships that have been strained or broken because of putting one's faith in Christ. We could talk about missed opportunities for advancement in careers because of the ethic that God has given us to live by as his people. We could talk about false accusations concerning character or actions, and these are really only a few of the things that followers of Jesus might be familiar with. And this shouldn't surprise us. Jesus himself promised his first disciples, he said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so we know that that as God's people, we will face suffering. We will face persecution. 
And what this psalm helps us to see is how do we respond then in light of those things? Do we, God's people, do we become overwhelmed with anxiety? Do we, do we lose hope? Do we think that the promises of God are not true? No. On the contrary, we, we remember the words of Jesus who said this. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that is exactly, in, in so many words, what, what is being described in verses 5 to 7 of Psalm 14. To the godless, God said, or sorry, to the godless, David says, there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And so we see that God's people, they are blessed because it is in God that they take refuge. And though here in Psalm 14, God's people are called poor, they have the great king on their side. The king stands on their side and And David says, we'll hold the godless to account for all of their evil. And he says, it will be a day of great terror to them. Now, David doesn't describe this day of terror uh, really in any way here. But we know again from, from the scriptures that there is a coming day of judgment. Jesus described it this way. He says, I tell you. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. To the godless, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then we are later told that these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we think about that for a moment, that this psalm may also serve as a warning to each one of us and a warning to anyone who here, who who has rejected God in the way that this psalm describes, refusing to, to submit to him and worship him as Lord, refusing to find the way of life that is offered in Christ Jesus alone. May this psalm be a warning and may it also help us all to see the the path of forgiveness, the path of life that is offered to each one of us in Christ Jesus. So as we read these words, my prayer is that each one of us would take refuge in a Lord uh, who rules over every situation. This psalm should encourage us to remember the character of our God in every circumstance of trial and pain and suffering. A God who has promised to be with us. A God who has said that we can take refuge in him. And on that note, Psalm 14 closes with really a shout of hope. When David says, oh that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. David cries out asking that salvation would come from Zion, from Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. 
His request is that God, who sits in heaven looking down all of of mankind, would hear his people and would act and would save them from evil. And we know that this request was fulfilled in the fullest sense possible. We can say that for all generations, God's people can know that salvation has come from Zion. Jerusalem, the city where God dwelt, is is the city where God himself was crucified and offered his life on behalf of his people that he might work out their salvation. And so so this psalm anticipates that, that in that time when God works out salvation for his people, that he would restore the fortunes of his people. That Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. And so we can know and say that because of the cross, because of what God has done in Christ Jesus, that God's people do rejoice and we are filled with gladness. Even while we live in a world that has largely rejected God, even when we suffer and we are facing trial and pain, even whenever it doesn't seem that we have done anything to deserve it. Even then, God's people rejoice. And what's being described here is is really the fruit of a life of the one who finds refuge in God, who believes in him, who seeks him, who looks to obey his good commands. And it's quite obvious, this is a countercultural life. That in the midst of pain and suffering and mistreatment, God's people are filled with his spirit. That we, might, that we might do things like this, that the scriptures call us to. That we might love our enemies and pray for them when they mistreat us. That we might be gentle whenever the world and everything that we, we know in this world would tell us to be harsh, that we would be joyful even when we are persecuted, that we would have peace even in every circumstance, that we would be faithful during trial, that in the midst of a dark world, we would be light that shines and points to Jesus. So we can say, because of the cross, that God's people, Jacob and Israel, we do rejoice and we are glad because of Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that that you would help us, that you would cause us to be a people who, who do not reject you, but who know you. Lord, a people who trust you during suffering. Lord, that because of who you've made us in Christ Jesus, we would be a light in this dark world. Lord, we pray for our city, for our country. Lord, for all of this world, that the truth of who you are, the one in whom all people can find refuge, Lord, the salvation that you have worked 
from Zion and made available to all people. Lord, we pray that that gospel would go forward all throughout the world and be made evident to everyone. Lord, and may there be many others who find refuge in you along with us. Amen.